You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast on a day where China's Premier Li Keqiang has formally addressed the media gathered for the closing press conference of the two sessions in Beijing and had this to say about the war in Ukraine. He's saying China is deeply concerned about the current situation in Ukraine and sincerely hopes that peace will soon be restored. Not a war, not an invasion, not a humanitarian crisis, a situation. Overnight, we've had the news that China's foreign minister Wang Yi has phoned his counterparts in France and Italy to say Beijing supports a ceasefire, which is quite the step down from what Ukraine's president Volodymyr Zelensky and the EU's foreign affairs chief Joseph Borrell have been calling for, and that's for Beijing to be the mediator to broker a peace settlement between Ukraine and Russia. My name is Jared Watt, specialist digital editor working from home for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. And after our extended bonus episode yesterday analysing Foreign Minister Wang Yi's annual press conference, we're back with another bumper episode featuring two voices you'll recognise and a special guest expert we've been chasing for quite some time. Finbar Birmingham is calling in from Brussels, talking about what Xi Jinping had to say in his phone calls to the leaders of France and Germany, and what US Secretary of State Antony Blinken had to say about China's role in the Ukrainian crisis while visiting Lithuania. Incidentally, this day, March the 11th, is the day in 1990 when Lithuania became the first republic to break away from the Soviet Union. Coincidence or kismet? And Chad Bray is calling in from London. He's talking about the bans on Russian oil exports and how they affect China's economy and how China's union pay system used by Russian companies trying to avoid the swift banking bans. He's also got news of two high-profile resignations from Huawei over its refusal to take a stand on the Ukraine war and the implications of property registration laws targeting Russian oligarchs that have serious implications for investors from mainland China. And we're really excited to bring you a special guest. Dr. Courtney Fung is an academic and author whose study of China's foreign policy and relationship with the UN over the decades gives her a real insight into the broader implications of China's decision to abstain from last week's UN emergency session vote on Ukraine. She's going to tell us more about Beijing's balancing act of positioning itself as an alternative leader of the world order while maintaining its no-limits relationship with Russia and what's behind the changing language and offers of assistance in this situation that has escalated from humanitarian crisis to brutal siege of cities and premeditated slaughter of civilians in Ukraine. Let's get started. Finbar Birmingham is our EU correspondent in Brussels. Finbar, let's start with this phone call that China's President Xi Jinping had with the French and German leaders He made this phone call the day after his foreign minister, Wang Yi, had spoken in a press conference and answered several questions about China's relationship with Russia and its stance on the Ukraine situation. What's happened there? Did she add anything new? What's the readout from this? Not really, uh, Jared. I don't think that there's anything really that's materially moved the needle uh, from any of these conversations. Um, really, what we've seen over the past few days is probably Beijing doubling down on on what was its previous stance, which is that um, they want to see negotiated diplomatic resolution to what's happening in Ukraine. But at the same time, they support Russia's claims to territorial integrity. They they are also upset about the eastward expansion, the supposed eastward expansion of, of NATO. So it's that sort of double-edged sword of wanting to support a diplomatic resolution, but tacitly backing the aggressor. I didn't see anything that changed that significantly. Certainly from Wang Yi's press conference on Monday, uh, the readout of his call with the European Union's top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, Pretty much what we'd seen the previous week on various readouts, meetings, you know, state media reports. Um, you know, the call with she was with uh, Chancellor Schulz and President Macron of Germany and France, respectively. And 
Yeah, not really that much to sort of read from those, apart from the fact that the Europeans are still desperately trying to get China engaged in this. And after two weeks of, of trying to do that, there's no real suggestion that China has become massively engaged in this. You know, the language is being poured over by Sinologists and by China watchers for some sort of material progression. But I think when some of the people I've been speaking to about it, general sense is look, it's very well and good to have all this language, but now's the time when you need the action. Like you keep talking about a diplomatic resolution, Ukraine's been blown to smithereens and there's no sign of any action being taken. So I think the proof is in the pudding with with things like this. I mean, how long does it? How long do you wait before you you sort of make some move to to sort of back up what what the rhetoric is? I think most people would be happy if if China was able to help settle this by hook or by crook. I don't see any evidence that it is doing. Uh, you know, we, we saw on Tuesday that the Chinese ambassador to Moscow met with the Russian deputy foreign minister in Moscow. We got a one-line statement from the Kremlin on that. Didn't really get any follow-up. Hope we are surprised and hope that something really sort of tangible comes out of this. But the words of Anthony Blinken, who's the Secretary of State of the United States, are much more sort of, um, I suppose they're they're trying to push China much harder than than Europe. Uh, Blinken keeps saying things like, put your money where your mouth is. Essentially, that's paraphrasing. Actually, Fimba, we've got the audio of what Anthony Blinken had to say while in Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania, the country that you've documented is receiving some serious trade coercion from China. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. We support the EU's decision to launch a legal challenge against China, the WTO. We have to defend the rules that keep trade fair. Beijing talks a lot about the importance of upholding international order, stability, respecting sovereignty. But from its coercion of Vilnius to its failure thus far to condemn Moscow's flagrant violation of the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine today and in 2014, Beijing's actions are speaking much louder than its words. Finba, we've seen Xi Jinping host his own democracy conference. We've seen Beijing put forward what it says its idea of democracy is and its idea of a rules-based order. It seems like Anthony Blinken has a point here. Well, think about the uh, shift in language from Europe over the last few weeks. Sunday before the invasion, Joseph Burrell took to the podium at the Munich Security Council and said something quite similar to, to what Blinken said. He said authoritarians are essentially trying to tear up the global order and create a new global order need to be inherently suspicious of the actions of China, Russia, and so on. Fast forward five days, and he was talking about his good friend Wang Yi and the need to sort of engage with China. Borel is of the view that China is the only one that can solve this because it has a hotline to Moscow, right? So necessity being the mother of invention, we've seen a dramatic about turn in Europe's uh, at least the EU, maybe I shouldn't say Europe. There are a diversity of views in this broad church. The EU's approach to China, I don't think that necessarily it's fully believed by everybody that that China will do anything on this, but I do think that they reckon it's worth a punt. It's worth a try. And if you didn't try it, then you may regret not trying it. And I think that's totally fair. I think that the US are inherently more skeptical of China Blinken has been speaking more aggressively, and that's fine. Their relationship with China is in a far different place than than the European Union. So I think we're at a stage now where we have Blinken asking for China to, to sort of condemn Russia, the European Union asking publicly China to help negotiate a ceasefire with Russia. Behind the scenes, the UK doing the same, but not wanting to do so publicly because they think it's counterproductive. They don't want to push them too hard in, in public, which seems to be the opposite tactic of the of the European Union. I think that this is a, this is something that's going to play out for a short while, and soon sooner or later they will sort of make a decision either way. Well, China is either helping or it's not. What happens then? We don't know. Uh, at the moment in Europe, the Ukraine situation. It's getting worse and worse in terms of the, the humanitarian effects. The you know, we've seen Russia yesterday blow up a maternity hospital. They're shelling citizens as they try and leave through these so-called humanitarian corridors, which have been agreed. You know, so that's desperate. Those that situation is awful. 
what we have seen is a slow up in the measures taken against Russia. I think that there's now sort of at a technical level where they're trying to get the the initial raft of sanctions that was so this blitzkrieg of the first few days of the the, the war. They're trying to sort of see, let the dust settle on those, get those out the door, and then sort of look to where they are. They added a couple of small level sanctions this week. EU leaders are meeting in Versailles today and tomorrow, obviously a very symbolic place. The Treaty of Versailles holds a special place in in Chinese history as well. As we've heard Joe Shin explain on this podcast before, they're going to be talking about the potential of EU enlargement to include Ukraine. We talked about this last week. Ukraine wants in. I don't think it's going to happen. I think they're probably going to throw some money at it this week and the Dutch, the Danish and so on. They, they realise that it's very unrealistic. So there's going to be a, a dose of realism for Ukraine tonight. But but I, I do think that the initial shock and awe from the, the legislative arm of the European Union has sort of settled. We're seeing real shock and awe from, from Russia and Ukraine militarily. But I think we're settling in for, for the long haul now. We'll see these things playing out probably not at as great a speed as we did in the first few days. Now, I think eventually the focus will sort of broaden. There will be more people interested in what has sort of happened between Beijing and Moscow. Of course, people are interested in it now, but I think they're still very much in crisis management mode. How do we deal with the immediacy of this problem? And then I think there will be a reckoning with with sort of what's happening in in that sort of relationship, wouldn't say alliance, but, you know, the coziness between Moscow and Beijing. So that's something we'll be monitoring. Finbar, last week, all the talk was about the United Nations General Assembly vote. This week, the discussion is about the United Nations Human Rights Commission. We hear now that the human rights chief is to visit Xinjiang. What's happened here? Yes, this is uh, something that's been in the works for almost four years. They've been trying to negotiate a visit for Michel Bachelet, who is the Human Rights Commissioner, High Commissioner of the UN's Office on Human Rights in Geneva to visit Xinjiang to inspect the conditions there for Uyghur people and other minorities um, who are allegedly persecuted by the Chinese government. This was uh, something she announced on Tuesday morning during her global update. She basically went through every human rights condition in the world and then dropped in, by the way, I'm going to going to Xinjiang. It was buried, really buried among hundreds of other things. She didn't speak about it at length. Yet again, she didn't mention Uyghur people. Something Someone's pointed out to me that she's never actually mentioned Uyghurs in a speech. She's not met with any members of Chinese civil society overseas. Now, it's going to be really interesting to watch this. I will add a sort of caveat and a sort of something that people are watching for. There was a line in there and it said that the, essentially this is subject to sort of COVID-19 regulations. Bachelet's term in office is up in September. So... She scheduled a trip for May. There's an advanced team leaving in April to prepare the way. She will be visiting China and Xinjiang. Before she announced this, I was assured that the trip would only take place if she was allowed unfettered access to all the relevant sites, unsupervised access to civil society groups in, in China, including in Xinjiang. Now, the trip is subject to you know the relevant COVID regulations, and we know in China these days, COVID regulations are, are as tough as they are anywhere else in the world. So how exactly does this human rights commissioner get to tour the country unsupervised to meet with groups of people, have this unfettered access is the term that they use, while at the same time keeping in line with China's COVID restrictions? I don't know how they do that, but it'd be interesting to see. Uh, one former official told me yesterday that they were sort of expecting this to be used as a reason to push the trip back again. And then come September, Bachelet leaves office and lo and behold, she's gotten through an entire term as the Human Rights Commissioner without going to China. There's suspicion among people who watch this organisation that this is very much a political arrangement, that they don't necessarily want to rock the boat with China. The Secretary General of the UN, uh, Antonio Guterres, he sees his legacy in the climate issues. You know, he sees cooperation on climate change as his potential legacy once he leaves the UN. Probably doesn't want to piss China off too much if he wants to have their own, their onboarding for issues related to climate. And, you know, you can see where this is going. You know, very much a speculative angle, but this is the chatter among the human rights community. They're very sceptical about this visit. 
they're very doubtful that the access that's required will be granted. By the way, there's also a human rights report on Xinjiang that the UN has has not released. Now, this has been something that's been in the works for a few years. Sources have told me that this has been ready for a year. They're not releasing it. Remember that there was a we had a story in January saying that they had agreed to hold off on the visit until after the Winter Olympics, which ended in February, and also on the condition that the report wouldn't be released before the Olympics. The report still hasn't been released, and we're on the other side of the Olympics. I asked them the other day, any news on this report? There was no update forthcoming. So it's not really the most transparent of, of processes. This is, I mean, th- these are the supposedly the top dogs of human rights supervision and monitoring uh, around the world. We also had a story this week in the Irish Times, uh, Naomi O'Leary, great journalist based here in Brussels, had a report that the UN has banned the use of the words war and invasion when applied to Russia in in the Ukraine situation. So there's a real sort of sense that China and Russia are very influential, five members of the permanent five on the UN Security Council. Nothing really can get done at the UN without their backing. And there seems to be a sense here that on, on very important issues, such as human rights, such as the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they're hampering progress. But look, we'll see. Give them the benefit of the doubt. See what happens in May or doesn't happen in May. But we'll be reporting on it anyway. Finbar Birmingham, informative as always. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jared. Chad Bray is a senior reporter for the business desk of the SEMP, but you of course know him as the longtime host of this very podcast, who took the decision to move to London and open up the SEMP's London Bureau in January this year. Chad, good morning. Uh, good morning, Jared. Uh, hello from London. Chad, overnight we had an announcement from the US, the UK, and the EU that I could only think of as best described as the second great oil shock. Can you just unpack what has happened and how is this playing into the limitless Uh, relationship between Russia and China and their special deal on energy. It's really fascinating because, you know, you you have this situation where the U.S. has basically banned imports from Russia. The U.K. is going to ban oil imports by the end of the year. In both those cases, they're not very reliant on uh, Russian oil. You know, the U.K. hasn't moved to ban natural gas yet, but that's only about 4% of their supply, and they're looking at doing that. The EU, on the other hand, it's a little bit like China. It's it's much more reliant on Russia as an energy trading partner. And so the EU has sort of this plan to eliminate oil imports by 2030. But at the moment, they're going to cut their gas imports by about uh, two thirds uh, by the end of this year. Now, China has not made a similar move. Russia is uh, the second largest um, exporter of oil to China. And it's about 15% of the supply, according to a recent S&P report. And there's really been no moves on it. China certainly has the ability, um, because it does have reserves, to sort of, you know, have a short term, you know, make its way through this. But it's also, you know, a country that's, that's really tied to commodity prices. And we've seen, you know, oil over, you know, $100 a barrel, something we hadn't seen since the financial crisis. Um, we had a bit of easing yesterday as the market started to sort of take in all of these, you know, movements around, you know, oil prices and, and what, what these sanctions are going to mean. But it's still it's something that can hurt China. China is also a big importer of food. And, you know, you have wheat that has, has gone up dramatically because both Russia and the Ukraine are huge suppliers of wheat to the rest of the world. Uh, Ukraine's called the breadbasket of the world um, by some people. And so, you know, it's really fascinating that place that China is going to find itself in here is, you know, how do they move forward and and, and how do they deal with this when much of the West is sanctioning Russia? Chad, I think it's fascinating you raised just how wide the impacts of this will be. I saw one person tweet out of Australia the fact that a very famous brand of noodles in Indonesia is going to go up in price because the wheat for that brand is sourced from Ukraine. We will see, you know, the, the full extent 
of the inflationary impact of these sanctions play out over the days and weeks to come. But I want to turn to banking. Chad, just a week ago, we had Joe Sin on this podcast talking about how the swift banking ban on Russia and sanctions on Russian companies were being watched very closely by the Chinese banking sector as well as the tech companies. We've seen just recently reports that China's union pay system is becoming a favoured destination for a number of Russian banks. Can you explain a bit more about what's going on with that? Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting because, you know, the West, you know, whether it be the UK, whether it be the US or the EU, they, they have moved very quickly to isolate Russia and to really cut it off from the world financial system. And so, you know, they've put sanctions on, on the major banks in Russia. They've sanctioned the central bank in Russia. And so if there's any assets that are held in London, held in, in New York, that are used for, for just doing sort of your normal interbanking kind of transactions overnight, those are frozen. And, and so it's becoming increasingly hard for, you know, Russian financial companies to engage in transactions outside of Russia. Now, you know, when it comes to union pay, you, we, we've seen Visa and, and MasterCard, those payment systems, as well as PayPal, pull out of Russia and say, we're not going to handle Russian transactions anymore. So you have union pay. It's an alternative to do international transactions outside of Russia. They do have a small domestic payment system that can handle sort of things. And you can actually use your visa card, you know, uh, reports are saying right now in Moscow to be able to do things. But it's only sort of on that local system. But if you want to do anything internationally and, man, we are in an interconnected international world right now. You've got to have an alternative, and union pay is increasingly becoming one. Now, the issue for China in all of this is they've been trying to walk a very, very thin line about, you know, we have a great relationship with Russia. They're a partner with us, but, you know, we don't want to make the rest of the world mad because for us, you know, that international trade still remains an important part of the economy. You know, Xi Jinping is facing pressure right now because China is facing some difficulty in meeting its growth prospects for this year. And, and it's one of the slowest growth prospects, you know, we've seen in a long while in, in terms of projections. And this is all coming for him politically when he's about to take this unprecedented third term, you know, later in the year and annoyed himself on, on the same level as, as Mao. And so it's really fascinating what that economic pressure is going to do and how far China is, is, is willing to go either way to try to navigate this. Chad, you have excellent sources in the international banking community. We've seen some reports that Russian companies are rushing to convert their money into yuan to move into the Chinese banking sector. What more can you tell us about that? Well, you know, there, there's some interesting things that are going on because, uh, you know, we've had several of the Russian banks uh, in the past few days uh, start to offer uh, yuan savings accounts to Russians because the ruble is, is under such pressure right now. At the same time, there's a lot of fears amongst, um, you know, folks in the UK, in the US, uh, you know, about whether or not China is going to help Russia sort of get around sanctions, and, and some of that could be in yuan transactions. Now, one issue in all of this is that the ruble is so unstable right now. I mean, I mean, it, it's it's not quite looking like Zimbabwe dollars back in the day, but it's sort of getting that that feel where you know they're facing price inflation, the ruble is not worth as much. And even trying to do transactions with Chinese companies, there have been some reports about. Because of the instability of, of the ruble, it's really hard to settle on pricing because, you know, if you're a Chinese company, you don't want to be stuck with a currency where you agree to a deal and it's worth, you know, a thousand yuan today and then tomorrow it's worth 500 and you've you shipped your, your gear. So th there are some openings for that, that that seem to be happening at the same time. It also seems to be quite challenging because of the pressure on the on the Russian currency. And you mentioned Chinese firms and Chinese companies. 
we've seen US Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo directly warn Chinese tech companies they'll face sanctions if they're caught supplying Russia. And she singled out the Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corps, SMIC, the chief manufacturer of semiconductors. How serious is this? Well, you know, I, I think the semiconductors in particular have been a real touch point for U.S. officials. They've been quite concerned, you know, about U.S. technology and ending up in the hands of, of China, that they've been concerned about, you know, China's push to, you know, really be self-reliant when it comes to semiconductors. And what is this going to mean? You know, we, we've discussed on this podcast before about the potential digital divide there where we have China's beta and the U.S.'s VHS or, or you know, pick your euphemism. But it, it's really, uh, you know, a kind of thing where the U.S. is worried about technology ending up in the wrong hands. And for China, they have a partner but they're also trying to, you know, navigate this really, you know, difficult divide here. And what do you do? And the U.S. has shown they're very willing to go after people on sanctions, particularly when it comes to technology. And so, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if the, if the U.S. were to, to use that as an additional nudge. I think right now, as we've seen in our reporting and, and other people's reporting recently, you know, there's this talk about China potentially being used to help negotiate some kind of settlement or to put some different kind of pressure on Putin to really stop what's going on in Ukraine. And in that situation, that may be something where the U.S. will throw a threat out, but then they'll hold on to it. Well, you mentioned the U.S. government and sanctions on Chinese tech companies. You filed a story overnight, our time here in Hong Kong, about Huawei in the U.K. We talk about the what now is a laundry list, not even a laundry list, an extensive list of major Western brands, uh, labels, companies exiting Russia. What has happened with Huawei? That situation is quite interesting because Huawei, you know, is under pressure in, in the UK. So in, in 2020, at the, at the end of, of the year, in the middle of the pandemic, the British government made a decision that they did not want Huawei involved in the 5G mobile network, you know, that's being developed in the UK. And just as the US is facing, you know, concerns of, about what they say, national security concerns about this, um, but they're also facing pressure because Huawei is one of the leaders in sort of developing this, you know, next generation technology. But the UK said, okay, at the end of 2020, no new buys of Huawei technology to go on the 5G network. And starting in 2027, there has to be nothing. So there's no Huawei equipment that's going to be allowed in 5G. And so in that situation, you know, you've got Huawei that has already faced its own geopolitical pressures, many of them coming out of the US-China trade war. But now you have a situation where Huawei is a Chinese company. Huawei doesn't really want to say much about what's going on in Ukraine, but you have all of these Western companies have come out. And so you had two directors who, you know, are, are both uh, Brits. They serve on the UK subsidiaries board and they said, you know, we want Huawei to make a statement condemning the invasion. And Huawei basically declined because they traditionally do not speak about political matters, but it came to a head and these two guys are leaving the board. And in 2020, we, we had a, a couple of members of the board who were also Brits who, who left because of concerns over what was going on in the UK about banning the technology. So, you know, it's that kind of situation in where a lot of companies are facing pressure to either stop doing business or to say something publicly. You know, we are, we are in an age now where companies are communicating to people by Twitter some brands have personas that they have online now that seem to communicate. But in this situation, so many people were facing pressure to do something where, whether it's the English Premier League, whether it's McDonald's, and it, it's come to a head where even the Chinese companies that traditionally don't like to say things publicly, like to sit on the sidelines and just sort of let it disappear, hopefully over time, are facing pressure to, you know, say something. 
Chad, we've heard direct requests from the Ukrainian foreign minister, from the US, the EU, Australia, all calling for Beijing to exert some sort of diplomatic influence with Russia in the name of peace in the Ukraine. Is that being echoed in London or is it all about Boris making speeches about oligarchs? I think politically here in in London in particular, this has been a place where a lot of money has been parked internationally, whether it's from the Middle East, whether it's from Russia, whether it's from China. And there's been some tension, particularly around the property market, because you have neighborhoods here that sometimes are called ghost neighborhoods because you show up and no lights are on. Or uh, if you go and you knock on the door, there was an MP the other day said she was canvassing and she, she canvasses in Knightsbridge. And she says, I would knock on the door and the um, housekeeper would say, oh, the madam or the mistress or, or the husband don't live here. You know, that this is just a property they own. And, and so that tension over international money coming in, driving up property prices in a country that has a housing shortage, particularly affordable housing, frankly, you know, being seen at points as a good, safe place to park your money. And it was an easy way with the golden visa program for people if they gave two million pounds, if they gave 10 million pounds to have a, a speedy way to residency. It's something, frankly, that I don't have really a, an opportunity to do, but but that if you had 10 million pounds, you had a great opportunity to do. And so they eliminated the golden visa program. And in the past few days, they have um, started a process to put in a new law that will create an overseas property registry. And it will require everyone who is an international investor in property to basically you know, come clean and say, hi, this company that I bought or this house I bought in Belgravia that is worth 10 million pounds and I bought it through a shell company, I own it. And that's going to affect Russians who basically right now are many oligarchs are facing sanctions. They're pulling assets out. There's this great pressure for Russians to sort of exit the market. And I'm guessing the flow on effect is that there'll be a few investors from mainland China be urgently having a look at their portfolios and their, their company structures as to which properties they own. Yeah, well, it is going to be interesting because, you know, they've made this thing retroactive. So if you've bought property in the last 20 years and you still hold it and you hold it through a shell company, you're going to have to come clean and say, hi, I own it. You know, whether that's Li Kaixing or that's Xi Jinping, let alone Vladimir Putin. It is, it is going to be an interesting situation here where we're going to see a lot of people have to say, hi, I have property here, or we're going to have a lot of sales, which could really change the market. And within all of that, there's been this tension about China that has been lingering in London. You know, we've had debates in Parliament about the Taiwan relationship. We've had debates about the Uyghurs and China's sort of fallen a bit out of focus because so much pressure is being put on Russia and there's so much concern about the Ukraine. But every so often, whether it's a prime minister's questions or it's a committee, the specter of China comes up. And there is still lingering concerns there that I think if we shift away from Russia and we find, oh, look, half a Knightsbridge is owned by Chinese tycoons, there could be a backlash. Sounds like interesting times ahead and what sounds like a major data journalism project for someone in uh, in London. Chad Bray, thank you very much for your time. It's great to speak to you again. Thanks so much, Jared. Hi, I'm Jasmine, one of the SCMP podcast producers. Our latest listening post newsletter is dedicated to everyone in Hong Kong who's struggling right now. Struggling through the day, struggling with their mental health, we found some podcasts to help you in the struggle. We're reviewing a podcast by an Ivy League professor who's tackling the question, how can we live a happier life? And we found another podcast that aims to break down the stigma around mental health by having deep and vulnerable discussions on mental issues. And if you want some comedy to cheer you up, we're reviewing a podcast created by two Hong Kongers who are managing to find the funny side of phone alerts, empty supermarket shelves, and cabin fever. From our SCMP podcast archive, learn about the drink that originated from Taiwan that's now a hit among Generation Z and which plays a crucial role in the Asian American experience. That's all on this week's Listening Post. 
subscribe at scmp.com newsletter, or hit the link in the description. Dr. Courtney Fong is Associate Professor in the Department of Security Studies and Criminology at Macquarie University in Australia, but her CV stretches back to Harvard, Chatham House, the University of Hong Kong, in a career of researching China's international relations and foreign policy. She's also the author of the book titled China and the Intervention at the UN Security Council, Reconciling Status, and we're very grateful she's with us today. Dr. Fung, thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me join you, Jared and Jasmine. Dr. Fung, I speak with you a week after China received very close scrutiny for how it voted at the emergency session of the UN General Assembly. In a week where we've seen both China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi and its Premier Li Keqiang making statements addressing Russia's invasion and war on Ukraine without using those words, war or invasion. What do you make of these statements from Wang Yi and Li Keqiang? One called for a ceasefire, the other said the situation in Ukraine is worrying and reiterated what's starting to sound like a mantra from Beijing. Those words, China respects the sovereignty and territorial integrity of all countries, as well as the principles of the UN Charter and the legitimate security concerns of all countries. What do you make of this? Well, I think that's an excellent question. And I think we have to think about what's been new in these last developments over the last day, and also what is actually quite consistent. I think obviously there's going to be a lot of interest in the fact that Wang Yi has called for a ceasefire. And again, this is a new opening move from China. They're no longer discussing the need for political solutions or, you know, consensus, dialogue, etc. They're now actually making an actual policy call that a ceasefire is important in Ukraine. And I think, again, it's very interesting because we've all understood that China has been concerned about the legitimate security concerns. That's quite vague. It's not clear which state has legitimate security concerns. But so it's interesting now to see that there's the addition of all countries, because on occasion, China has made it clear that they mean the legitimate security concerns of Russia. Um, And Ukraine is an issue or a situation, but it is not an actor or a country that itself might have legitimate security concerns. Those aren't highlighted in the PRC officials phrasing. So the addition of all countries, I think, is a very important indicator. And the same thing with ceasefire, that China's position might be just moving slightly on the edges. But again, I think it's very important to think about what's been consistent. The language of legitimate security concerns is by definition vague. You have to figure out which legitimate security concerns they are. You also have to accept that NATO and the United States, according to Chinese officials, most consistent language, are the source of the problem of generating these um, legitimate security concerns that on occasion China specifies that Russia has. We also have to understand that China has been very consistent in not using any language of invasion or war or armed conflict. It's been very clear that there's a situation and an issue and there are conditions. So I think, again, sort of maintaining that ability to stay at arm's length is something that we're still going to be contending with as we listen to these latest developments. So we've heard everyone from the EU to Anthony Blinken, that fellow down under, uh, as well as uh, Ukraine's President Zelensky, calling for China to mediate between Russia and Ukraine. Are these calls realistic? I think these calls are really fascinating. It's it's a real signal um, on this sort of last decade since we've had a major global crisis that's flashed through the UN Security Council at warp speed. Um, I think we could argue that Libya was that last crisis that did that back in 2011. You know, this is a real move now that China has been called on by a number of states, the European Union included, that China needs to be the mediator. And I think in many ways, it's a very shrewd move because we all need to better understand what Chinese interests are and how Chinese principles are applied to a real live case of, frankly, invasion. And in many ways, asking them and forcing them to have to answer the question, will you mediate? We believe you're so important, you must mediate, makes an opportunity for everyone else to better understand how China conceives of its role in addressing this crisis. And I'd just like to note that you can go back to an editorial in the everyone's favorite, the Global Times of the 27th of February, in which they talked about the fact that China's own stance of neutrality is important because 
If there is one country that can one day effectively mediate the conflict, that country should be one with real neutrality. So is that not kind of directly tipping your own hat um, if you were you know, the editorial team at that particular favorite tabloid, that maybe there is some room there? But again, you asked me, is it realistic? And I have to say, I'm quite hesitant to say that this is going to materialize. And I say this for a number of reasons. I think, first off, a lot of China's language, and including the six points that have come out in sort of the last couple of days, you know, China's been very aspirational and indeed very vague that they would like to have dialogue. They'd like to see political consultation and discussion to develop solutions through discussion and dialogue. But it's not exactly clear whether or not China, apart from taking a more active role and working in its own way, would China be a leading player? And I think that vagueness tells us a lot that China wants to be involved, but may not be the only one responsible for resolving the crisis. And I think, again, you know, think of this six-point initiative. It's very much focused on the secondary effects of having invasion, the need to shelter the displaced, the need to protect civilians, the need to have unimpeded humanitarian access, to support UN coordination, to protect foreign nationals. Nothing on this six-point list explicitly says mediation. Nothing explicitly says China's role in facilitating that mediation by being the mediator. And I think, again, this also tips at very practical concerns that Beijing might just have. After all, the whole world is watching this. A number of key international actors have flat out called for China to be involved. And if it does in this particular situation, it must actually perform. And that's a rather large ask because the more successful cases of China's sort of um, mediative efforts have been in situations where China's been sort of the much larger, much more vuncular big brother, thinking here of the DPRK, thinking here of Sudan or South Sudan. This is going to be a lot more complicated um, for China to sort of lean on Russia in that way, and also a lot more complicated when, frankly, it's unclear what type of real local minutiae knowledge Beijing might have to deal with Ukraine also, in a way that it maintains that type of knowledge with the DPRK, with Myanmar, et cetera. So in a practical sense, what would they gain from actually stepping in? And I think, again, this purposely vague language, six points that come up with other good solutions for other secondary problems, is really telling us a lot about what Beijing might be considering at the moment in regards to that question. So is it realistic in one word answer? I think at this point, no. So Dr. Fong, can I take you back to last week and the United Nations emergency uh, General Assembly session, this vote urging Russia to immediately halt its, quote, aggression. What did you take from China's abstention from that vote? Well, I think, Jared, I think we have to put that vote in context. And it's very important to understand that the UN General Assembly emergency session is an incredibly rare opportunity. There's been less than a dozen since the formation of the United Nations system post-World War II. And this opportunity is really to cast moral leadership the words and the decisions through the UN General Assembly vote have no actual effect in real life. They cannot enforce anything. So we have to recognize that, that that's more sort of moral ground than anything else. I think it's also very important context before we turn to discuss the 2 March 2022 um, Chinese abstention vote in the UNGA calling for an end to Russian military aggression, an end to Russian military operations in Ukraine. It's very important to understand the context of the votes before and the votes that followed. So the votes before in the UN Security Council, where the, the language was again quite clear that Russia has to stop attacking Ukraine, that the world deplores Russian actions, China again abstained. And again, if we look the day after the UNGA vote on 3 March at the UN Human Rights Council, where there was a call for commission of inquiry, that's the first step for figuring out the scale and level of human rights abuses and whether or not there's room for any um, legal efforts through various UN organs, China again cast an abstention vote. And so I think it's very important to recognize that in each of these forums, in particular at the council, a Chinese no vote has a lot of impact because it sends a very clear message. Of course, Russia vetoed at the Security Council, and of course, Russia voted no in both the UNGA and the UN Human Rights Council. So this is telling us a lot, right, that China wants to have this no-limits strategic partnership, but evidently there are limits, and the limits come into the shape of an abstention vote. 
The abstention vote is important because it shows that China is trying to not take a position and trying to make a position out of sitting in the middle. I think it's also very important to note that for these abstention votes, China was able to lean upon um, partners and other colleagues, other states. You know, in the Security Council, it was not voting alone, voting with India and the United Arab Emirates, both in rotating positions going through the council. Um, in the UNGA, China could you know, stand with 34 other states. And who was Russia left with? Eritrea, Syria, Belarus, and the DPRK. Not exactly the biggest band of brothers that you might want if you're facing down moral opprobrium from literally the whole world with 141 states voting yes for a call for end of military operations. And so I think, again, we have to recognize the context these abstention votes, that China is trying to avoid taking a clear position in the sense that it wants to have this no-limits partnership appear feasible and real. It also wants to make sure that it can still operate in ways that will not alienate the West, the other Western players moving around that clearly do have a position, um, NATO and the EU, about clear displeasure in Ukraine. And at the same time, China wants to be able to claim it's holding its principles of sovereignty and non-interference. So again, not damaging its international reputation and status as siding with an international pariah, while it can hold up the view that there's true sovereignty for every state. And I think one last thing that's very important to recognize that these are real efforts to obtain other foreign policy goals, making sure the UN stays relevant, and a veto and a no vote makes China look like it views the UN as being irrelevant for this key issue going through global politics at the moment. And China also has to figure out how it's going to get out 6,000 nationals out of Ukraine. And so obviously alienating the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people is not going to necessarily make that happen any easier. So I think there's a couple of things also moving that provide real context for extension. One of the common goals of Beijing and Moscow was to stop the expansion of NATO, both in Europe and in any form in Asia. But as of last year's democracy conference in Beijing, we're seeing China's declaration to the world that its system of governance is best. And as you detailed there, it's really got aspirations to get amongst the international committees and various departments at the UN to show its leadership. Is there a risk of let me use this phrase, collateral reputational damage for Beijing as it sort of throws its support or tacit support for Russia into this invasion and war in Ukraine? That's a great question, Jared. I think if we think about this collateral reputational damage, I'm going to interpret that, that China sort of gets dragged down with Russia. And that's what you mean by collateral. I think we've got to think about reputational damage with which audience. Um, clearly, Beijing is concerned about managing domestic expectations. The fact that, you know, one of the clearest things that came out of the foreign minister discussion with the Ukrainian representation was that they wanted the protection and the safe passage for 6,000 Chinese nationals to exit Ukraine unmolested in full safety. Um, and that was the one thing that was clearly, you know, fulsome paragraph in this discussion between the two foreign ministers. This was the thing that came across very clear that Beijing was looking for that and looking for that support out of the Ukrainian leadership. The fact that they have gone to great pains to um, voice over the comments of the International Paralympic Committee head, the fact that they've been preventing the English Premier League from being shown within China on the you know, TV channels indicates that there is a concern that you might see something that tells you something else about what's going on in Ukraine that might deviate from the particular party line. So I think managing that sort of domestic level reputation and how Chinese peoples perceive their state and their state's activities abroad, I think is something very important also. I think when we move to the international level, though, we've got to be very careful because you can probably anticipate that certain states are going to decry China's actions as too much or not enough. And so this sort of regular naming and shaming crowd, which they might perceive as being key states in the West, to some extent, there's sort of no love lost there. This is going to be happening. But does this mean that they cannot condition and improve it? And that's certainly not the case. Of course, they've been working very hard over the last couple of days, in particular, the shuttle diplomacy with European capitals shows this, the efforts of the six-point plan. Of course, nothing about mediation, but second-order problems 
like humanitarian affairs, like humanitarian corridors, that are the sad yet inevitable outcome of armed invasion, that these things are, again, efforts at protecting and supporting China's reputation. I mean, I think, again, above all, Beijing is sensitive to being seen as aiding and abetting a pariah. And I think this is where we have still room to learn about what China's interests are and how far China is willing to go to protect that reputation. But again, even those moves over the last three or four days talking about the six points is really telling that I think China is trying to create a little bit of space um, to not go down as part of this collateral reputational damage with Moscow. I, it's not in for a penny, in for a pound. Dr. Fung, that's a very interesting point you make about what China is saying publicly to the world, what it's letting its domestic audience hear. As we know, the state broadcaster is really running a strong pro-Russia line in this Ukraine conflict. There's so much more to talk about. I do hope we can talk again. Dr. Courtney Fung, thank you for coming to this podcast. Thank you very much, Jared, and thank you, Jasmine, for having me. That's it for this week, and by now you should know what to do next. Head to the South China Morning Post website at scmp.com and get up to date on the latest reports and analysis on anything that's changed since we published this podcast and you pressed play to listen. It's been a huge week of news, not just the ongoing crisis in Ukraine. We've had an election result in South Korea. We've had discussion of nuclear weapons being positioned in Japan. There's so much happening. We could make another episode on the spot. We will bring it to you next week. Big thanks as ever to podcast producer Jasmine Zert for overcoming dodgy Wi-Fi and Zoom call dropouts to make what you're listening to sound so good. And a big thanks to you listening in, in the US, Australia, the UK, Canada, Germany, Singapore, Malaysia, and of course, what's best described as a captive audience here in Hong Kong. And for you folks at mainland China using a VPN to download this podcast each week, we see you and we thank you. Stay safe, be well, keep your distance, but stay in touch. Bye for now. A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM. For a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.